Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, the concluding verses of this chapter. I honestly thought I would finish today with this series, but I woke up Friday on Groundhog Day and I saw my shadow. So you're going to have six more weeks of the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you, Suki. She, it wasn't original with me. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's not part of Jesus' words. That's the inspired comment of the uh, gospel penman, Matthew. Jesus' sermon is done, including the closing application, the instructions, the applications. But the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, makes this one brief comment on the effectiveness of this sermon. Isn't it interesting that though it says the multitudes were, the people were astonished, it does not say that they believed. It doesn't tell us that anybody believed. Maybe some did, but we don't read that. But they were powerfully impacted. I just want you to kind of get the setting refreshed in your mind. I won't have you turn to verse 1 of chapter 5, but it kind of tells us the setting. Uh, Jesus went up into a mountain there by the Sea of Galilee. When he was set, his disciples came unto him. So originally it was his disciples listening, but by the time he finished the sermon, and we may not have all of it, but by the time he finished the sermon, there were multitudes there that had joined the immediate disciples and heard Jesus' startling message on the hillside. I don't think they got up and left. I think they were glued to the grass or whatever they were sitting on. Maybe they brought their pallets. They didn't have lawn chairs, I'm sure. These verses direct our attention back to the preacher more than the sermon. Matthew doesn't say that the sermon was all that compelling. It was. But he doesn't say that. He points to the preacher. He spoke with authority. I think that in itself refutes the notion that the famous Sermon on the Mount was just merely exalted ethical and moral teaching and nothing else. That was the view of the late famous Prime Minister of India, Mahatma Gandhi, one of the most famous Prime Ministers of all time. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Gandhi claim to love this sermon. He was in London for several years, and he studied it very carefully. He said that it went straight to his heart. He believed that Christ's sermon was, and this is an exact quote, a moral imperative for everyone to wholeheartedly follow, end of quote. He claimed that it influenced the development of his own famous philosophy of nonviolence. But Mahatma Gandhi rejected the divinity of Christ. He rejected 
the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was guilty of doing what so many try to do even today. They separate Christ's teaching from His person. You can't do that. He doesn't give you that option. Christ's teaching here was far more than mere moral and ethical advice. And these verses prove that. Again, Matthew gives us the response of the crowds at the end of this message. They were astonished. That's a strong word. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. Jesus left them with their jaws dropping and their mouths wide open. They had never heard anything like it before. Their rabbis never spoke with such authority. Their rabbis just quoted others. Their rabbis just kind of read off the backs of their eyeballs. And for the most part, it was boring. It was dry as last year's bird's nest, you've heard me say. It was utterly lacking in freshness and spontaneity. Interesting what some people do with powerful preaching. Probably the most most famous skeptic of the 18th century in Europe was the Scottish man David Hume. He didn't believe in any religion, really. But one time he got up and said, well, I'm going to go. And he was asked, where are you going? This is what he said, and you can see it on the screen. I'm going to hear George Whitfield preach. That's the famous evangelist of the 18th century of the Great Awakening. I'm going to go hear George Whitfield preach. I don't believe a word he preaches, but he does. That's what makes the difference, folks. I want you to see the preacher this morning and not the sermon. As I said last week, you, you can't flatter Jesus by responding what a masterful sermon. Boy, you, those Pharisees, you really let them have it. That doesn't resonate with the Son of God. He demands to be worshiped and obeyed. And you can only do that to a person. Jesus left his hearers, the multitudes they're referred to as, astonished, amazed, dumbfounded, in disbelief at what they had just heard. Why? Verse 29 tells us, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. What is this authority? What did it mean for Jesus? We probably won't get to it today, but what should it mean for us? And God willing, next week we'll talk about Does God expect His servants today to preach with the same authority? But today, what did Jesus' authority mean for Him? Let's talk about what He claimed for Himself. We can't deny it. Jesus of Nazareth made some stupendous claims in His earthly ministry. Although Mahatma Gandhi refused to believe it, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. We've talked about that many times. 
That's why the Jews in John chapter 10 took up stones to throw at him, to, to kill him. I mean, they, they, they weren't just trying to hurt him. They wanted to kill him. They were convinced that he was guilty of blasphemy. And he said to them as they were throwing the stones at him, I've done many wonderful works in your presence. For which of those works are you stoning me? And they say, we're not stoning you because of your works, but because you claim to be God, and that's blasphemy. You see, he actually claimed in these words, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be the great I am that revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Oh, they bristled at that. Them were fighting words. But as we glance back at this masterpiece of a sermon, I hope you will with me see the fingerprints of the master. How did Jesus show his divine authority? His influence. His, if you can call it this, I hesitate to use the word, his force. I think it'd be good for us to just stop and think about that. First of all, he was original in what he said. And again, I say, this is what set him apart from the the scribes. Who were the scribes? They were the self-proclaimed interpreters of the law and and, uh, all of the glosses and uh, commentaries on the law. They were always quoting the rabbis, even though the rabbis often did not agree. And so the scribes had to memorize reams of materials, uh, all kinds of quotes and extended commentary. How shocking it must have been for them to hear Jesus say repeatedly, are you listening? No less than nine times, as is recorded in this Sermon on the Mount, ye have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you, wow. That knocked their socks off. And he would proceed to say something original. And he would say it with conviction. I'm saying at least one of the surprising things about Jesus was his originality. Isn't it refreshing to hear somebody say something original instead of just reading off a teleprompter? I get so tired of that. Look at it all the the charges of plagiarism we hear about in recent years and even days. Politicians guilty of it or charged with it. First ladies, presidents, university presidents, preachers, big scandal rocked the Southern Baptist Convention two years ago over this. Musical recording artists. It almost... uh, makes you cynical whenever you hear something new. Is it copied and pasted or is it original? Some of you old enough to remember the Xerox commercial. Is it Xerox or is it original or is it Xerox? I just want to say Jesus did not say anything that was cut and paste. Oh, he quoted from the Old Testament, yes. But he was entirely original and fresh. It was authentic. It was spontaneous. It was originality of thought. It was originality of expression. And no wonder those two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the afternoon of Jesus' resurrection, when they, for the longest time, they didn't recognize who Jesus was, but when they finally recognized who he was at the table because of the breaking of bread and they saw the nail prints in his hands, 
and he vanished from their presence. No wonder they turned to each other and they said this, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened unto us the scriptures, something was different about it. Jesus spoke with the power, the authority of his person. He was God in the flesh. He was in a class by himself. You can't compare him to anybody. He's incomparable. His deeds were just as original as his words, and his deeds authenticated his words. So he didn't hesitate to correct the glosses of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, as far as the people are concerned, he rushed in where angels feared to tread. And Jesus would say, you have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. And he wasn't correcting Moses. That's a big mistake a lot of people make. We talked about that when we were given an exposition of that part of the Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't, he wasn't correcting Moses. Oh, how his enemies love to frame it that way. They, they love to pit Jesus against Moses. No, he wasn't correcting Moses. Are you listening? Jesus was cor- contrasting the false interpretations and representations of the Pharisees with the true teaching of the law. And that's why he would say, you have heard that it hath been said by them of old time. He didn't say, you have heard that it hath been said because it was written. He was not actually quoting from the Old Testament in most of these cases. With the, in the exceptions, I'll come to that in a minute. It's kind of like people today misquoting Scripture. A lot of people are guilty of this. They show that they don't really read the Word of God, not very closely. Often people will take 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul's words there, and say, well, you know, the Bible says money is the root of all evil. It doesn't. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, for the love of money is a root literally of every evil. Big difference. Jesus had the originality and the authority to, to correct the popular misconceptions that the people had about the Old Testament scriptures because they trusted the rabbis implicitly. And of course, not all of them could read. And it was, they didn't have copies of the Bible in, like we do, praise the Lord. Dear friends, I beg you to believe Jesus over anybody and everybody else. Let God be true and every man a liar. As we'll hear this coming weekend with Justin Peters, there are so many who are blindly following deceivers and charlatans and hucksters who exploit them. They're frauds. They're laughing all the way to the bank. And those who get deceived by them, unless they're awakened, will share in their fate. How sad. But I'm sincere when I say this. I'm, uh, my heart is touched when I see the condition of so many who are victimized by these people. Maybe you've been victimized by somebody you trusted, but they betrayed you. Maybe you've been abused, traumatized, violated. 
Aren't you glad that, I hope you can say it with the hymn writer, Jesus is not like men untrue. You can trust him. His words are just like his person, faithful and true. Jesus didn't hesitate to correct the glosses, the false interpretations. Jesus didn't hesitate, secondly, to give a spiritual meaning and interpretation to the law. I can only briefly touch on this. I really emphasized it a lot when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse. When Jesus did quote from the actual Ten Commandments and not just the oral interpretation of them, He would say this, Ye have heard it said, but I say unto you. For example, He said, Ye have heard that it said, Thou shalt not kill. But then He added spiritual force to that commandment, one of the actual Ten Commandments, when He added, But I say unto you, if a man hates his brother in his heart, In effect, his words say that he's guilty of murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, he wasn't contradicting Moses. He wasn't correcting Moses. He was adding a spiritual force to it. And he did that on his own, his own authority. Jesus is the only true interpreter of God's law. And probably that's what made Gandhi admire Christ's Sermon on the Mount, but he failed to connect the dots. He admired the ethics, but he failed to worship the ethicist as the only true God. Please don't make that mistake. There are many people who have commendable motives about this, but they're going around the world teaching character, but they can't get away with associating it with Jesus Christ. And if you just teach character, but you don't connect it to Jesus Christ, you'll produce Pharisees. That's all you'll do. Secondly, he was confident and certain about what he said. Jesus was. Have you ever counted in the Gospels how many times Jesus introduced a profound statement with the words, verily, verily? John especially records this. That means truly, truly. And as I've said before, it means literally amen in in the Greek, amen, amen. Jesus is the only writer you see who (laughs) says amen at the beginning of what he's going to say, instead of the end. Now, he's not saying, let me propose something to you for your consideration. Uh, Let me just bounce something off of you. Oh, no. Jesus spoke with certainty, absolute certainty. He spoke dogmatically. That's why he often used the words must, I must, or I know. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up? He must be crucified. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. Ye must be born again. I must preach the gospel of of the kingdom to other cities also. I know that ye have not the love of God in you. I know which of you will betray me. I don't need anybody to testify about any of you. For I know what's in you. Oh, how he startled his ears. 
on the hillsides of Galilee and the towns of Judea when he, when he said that, when he talked like that. I mean, right off the bat here in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I mean, just so matter-of-factly, no doubt about it. And then when he said in chapter 5, verse 44, in effect, I, I know what you've heard the rabbis say, I know what you believe because of what they say, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you, so that you may be children resembling your Father. Put yourself in the shoes of the multitudes that heard that. They had to have thought either what authority or what effrontery, what brashness. Who does he think he is? And as you hear me today relay Christ's words to you, you're going to have to make that same judgment in your mind. Everybody here today, everybody listening, watching the live stream or hearing it archived, you're going to have to come to a decision in your mind and heart, will I defer to Christ's authority? Will I personally receive His command and submit to it when He says you must be born again? Or... Will I lean to my own understanding and say, I'm good. Don't worry about me. I'm good. Will you accept his assessment that you are a guilty sinner? And as he said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or will you just go on making comparisons and saying, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You can always find somebody that doesn't measure up to what you think you are. Remember how that publican in the temple, when he prayed, he prayed and he said, God be merciful to me. In the Greek, it's the definite article, the sinner. He didn't see anybody else in the temple. He didn't stack himself up against anybody. He just saw himself in the presence of a holy God, totally undone, as as Isaiah said, I'm ruined. God be merciful. Have you come to that spot? For those of you who have accepted that verdict of Christ and you have repented of your sin and you put your trust in Him, which is the very reason that He came the first time, amen? The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I just want to remind you of that promise that He gave before He ascended to heaven. I will come again. I will receive you unto myself. And we can be just as confident and certain that he's coming again as that he came the first time. And we don't need any cataclysmic sign from heaven. We don't need some sensational self-proclaimed prophet to arrive on the scene and write a book as one did a number of years ago. Some of you aren't even old enough to remember it. 88 reasons why Jesus is going to return in 1988, which obviously did not happen. All you need is the bare word of him who possesses the authority of God and cannot lie and cannot be deceived. Jesus spoke with certainty. I want you to notice something else that we might be a little bit different wrinkle than we've considered. 
He came from the, and I'm using the word, the outside. You say, Pastor, what in the world do you mean? Do you mean that Jesus was some kind of a extraterrestrial creature? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. He, he was no creature at all. Because a creature is, by definition, a created being. And Jesus was the uncreated creator of all things. All things were made by him. And he is eternal. He is before all things. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us in that marvelous first chapter of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm, he said, when everything that has been created waxes old like a garment and is folded up and perishes, Jesus will remain. What I mean is that Christ alone can say, I am come. If you want a profitable study, just, just trace that throughout the Gospels. The times Jesus said, I am come. If I counted correctly, he said it no less than 12 times. What an extraordinary expression. He speaks of himself and of his life in this world as being different from that of anybody else. As far as I can tell, only, only one time did he say, for this cause I was born. He talked about being the truth of God. He didn't talk that way generally. He, he just says, I am come. He didn't say, I was born to. That's the way we talk. He said, I came into the world. I am come. From where? From eternity? From heaven? From the outside? No wonder the multitudes were astonished. Who is this who says of himself, I am come? What does he mean? Who is this man? This son of the carpenter of Nazareth, who looks just like us. No doubt some woman would speak up and say, there's, there's nothing special about this man. I babysat for him when Mary had to run some errands in Nazareth. We know his family. We know his brother. We know James, Joseph, Judah, Simon. We know his sisters. There's nothing special about them. Oh, they're all respectable, law-abiding citizens, but where did he get the wisdom to do all these mighty miracles and to say, I am come? And instead of being impressed and submitting, they were offended. Well, why did he say, I am come? With our time remaining, and before we baptize, I just want to share two or three things, whatever we have the time. What a fascinating study. I hope you'll continue it on your own. Why did Jesus say, I'm come? I'm come from the outside. First of all, he said, I'm come to fulfill the law. You want to go back, if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to go very far. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, the first, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to what class? To fulfill. What is Jesus claiming here? Don't miss this. He is claiming absolute perfection. He is saying, I came from outside to keep the law of Moses, and no one else has ever been able to do that perfectly. 
Not Abraham. He lied about his wife. He broke the commandment. Not Moses. <laughs> he literally broke the law. I mean, he threw the tablets of stone down and smashed them to pieces. He disobeyed God. Not David. He broke about all the Ten Commandments, but especially the one about adultery and the one about murder. Not Mary, even Jesus' own mother, she confessed that she needed a Savior. Not Peter, he cursed and swore and denied his Lord. But Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. How did he do it? Two ways. Please don't miss this either. First of all, he did it by, as I've alluded to it already, by keeping it perfectly, keeping it absolutely, both the letter and the spirit. He could point his finger at his accusers in his day and say, which of you convinceth me of sin? And they couldn't do it. In order to get him crucified, they had to twist his words and fabricate something. So he fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. But secondly, he fulfilled the law by bearing the penalty that it meets out upon transgressors. So many verses touch on this, but 1 Peter 3, verse 18, he suffered for sins, the Bible says, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Oh, beloved, the heart of the gospel is, and it's said in so many ways, in so many places throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christ died for us. He had no sin of his own. He was dying for others. It's a joy to talk with people that are being baptized, and I've done that with the ones being baptized today, and especially with the younger children. I'll always ask them this question, why did Jesus have to die? And usually they answer it very correctly, because that's the only way I can be saved. He was dying for others, and I remind you this morning, it is only His death the bloody, ignominious death, the shedding of sinless blood that can atone for sin. It is not imitating His example. How many people are trying to be saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mount outwardly, by keeping the golden rule and doing unto others as they would have others do to them? And they're hoping that God won't be able to turn them away from heaven at the last day. And they just avoid those verses we've already talked about right before these last verses where Jesus says to people that have done that and are pleading their goodness, depart from me, I never knew you. No, we're not saved by imitating His example. We're not saved by following His teaching. We're saved by trusting in His person and in His work. He died for us. But notice Jesus claimed to fulfill not just the law, but the prophets too. The prophets. I love this. He's the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets pointed. We made a whole study of this several years ago. It took us 103 sermons. And I still didn't do justice to many. Went through the Old Testament. He's the one to whom the Old Testament prophets, I'm talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, or Haggai, you should say, Zechariah, Malachi. The one to whom they all pointed, he's the Messiah. He's the suffering servant of Jehovah. He's the branch. 
He's the stone cut without hands. He's the one who will sit as a refiner of the sons of Levi. He's the son, S-U-N, of righteousness who will arise with healing in his wings and on and on we could go. He's the fulfiller of the prophets, not just the fulfiller of the law. We would be in a heap of trouble if Jesus had not fulfilled the law and the prophets. We'd be in a heap of trouble. Because Jesus said in chapter 5, verse 20, the text of this sermon, we've talked about it many times before, chapter 5, verse 20, for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who were considered very righteous outwardly, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that if you want to go to heaven, God demands perfection. I got your attention now. God demands perfection. And you can't do it. And I can't do it. You have to receive the perfect righteousness of His dear Son, the only one who ever fulfilled the law and the prophets. You have to receive that by faith and be credited with the righteousness of Christ in the sight of God in order to be a, go to heaven. We'd be in a heap of trouble if Jesus hadn't fulfilled the law. Would you turn to one passage of Scripture that helps, I think, us understand this even more clearly? Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Romans chapter 10. In this section, Paul is talking about Israel. <clears throat> and his burden for them, and he's charging them with knowing the truth but not submitting to it. And in verse 4, he says to these people who knew the law, for Christ, that is the Messiah, is the end of the law. Would you put a little parenthesis there or a little arrow and make a note there? That word end means aim, aim. For Christ is the aim of the law for righteousness to everyone that what? Believeth. Everyone who believes. Please hear me this morning. God demands not only that you be forgiven. There are a lot of people who just have this soft view of God. I'm glad we confirmed our forgiveness to our brother this morning who has repented of sin. That was so sweet. That was so biblical. And there's a high cost involved in confessing sin. That will help put a lot of roadblocks in his path to going back to his besetting sin, what he did this morning. And I'm glad we forgave him, and that's Christ-like, and forgiveness is wonderful, but did you know forgiveness is not enough as far as God is concerned? You have to be declared perfectly righteous. There's no way that we can attain to that standard. We have to receive it by faith, the righteousness of Christ. Have you trusted him for that? That's why he came, to fulfill the law, because we can't. He came, he said, to reveal the Father. It's amazing, people today, and they've done this down through the centuries, especially since Jesus went back to heaven, and we no longer see him in person, who claim that they have seen God. I saw his face. I touched him. God spoke to me. I don't mean to make light of that. 
But what does the Bible say? Here's what the Bible says. John 1.18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. You may have a translation that says revealed Him. That's what it means. When Philip asked Jesus to reveal the Father, he turned to Philip and not exasperated, but in a little tone of rebuke, he said, hast thou been so long time with me and you still don't know me, Philip. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus is God with skin on. And if you don't come to believe that, Jesus said in John 8, 24, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus came to reveal the Father. We'll have time for one more, and then we've got to baptize. Jesus came from the outside to give us eternal life. There's no life outside of Him. He said it so clearly in John chapter 10, that wonderful chapter where He reveals Himself as the good shepherd that gives His life for the sheep. And in chapter 10, verse 10, the latter part of the verse, He says, I am come. There it is again. I am come. How that startled people. I am come, not I am born, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Please note two things and then we're done. He had to come where we were for us to have this life. And we know why he came. He came to die. He didn't just come to set a good example. He didn't just come to make people feel better and relieve suffering. He had to become a man to do that. Because God cannot die. The second thing I want you to see is eternal life is in Jesus. You cannot be saved apart from having the Son of God indwelling you. And as I look at you this, this morning, it just turned afternoon. As I look at you, I'm serious. You either have Christ or you don't. There's no in between. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. One more passage of Scripture. Would you turn to 1 John chapter 5? Verses 11 and 12, marvelous verses. I love the simplicity, the monosyllables that John uses, both in his gospel, but primarily in his epistle. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, and then we'll read verse 12. And this is the record. It's not a matter of opinion. This is not just the view of a founder of a religion. This is a matter of record. All right, what is it? That God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. S-O-N. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Could that be simpler? 
And John adds in his gospel, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Something doesn't change, he's going to go to hell. So I ask you this morning, do you see it? Perhaps for the very first time, authority comes from God. And God has vested his authority in his son, Jesus Christ. Oh, the power in Christ, the power in his word. You can't separate the two. When people were following Jesus and the the Jewish leaders said, we can't let that happen anymore. They sent officers, they sent the temple police to him in in John's gospel, I think chapter 7, it talks about this. And they said, arrest him, bring him back to us. A short time later, these temple police came back empty-handed. And the Jewish leaders that sent them said, why did you not bring him? And they did say, well, he resisted arrest. He had too big a group of disciples. There were too many people around him. No, they didn't say that at all. You know what they said? They said, never man spake like this man. The power of his words arrested them so they couldn't arrest him. You're going to have to deal with this man. He's got the divine authority upon him. Have you submitted to the lordship of this person? And have you believed his authoritative word? Only if you can say yes to that sincerely do you have eternal life. Will you bow with me in prayer? Oh, Father, would you help someone here this morning or watching the live stream to do what multitudes in Jesus' day stop short of doing and truly believe on Christ? Not just be astounded. Not just be amazed. But submissively obedient and believe on him. Come to know him as Savior and Lord. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to do his office work in that regard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.